Good morning, everyone. We are back at the NBA All-Star Game off of the Super Bowl, but I got my MVP, the double B. Blaine Bartlett is in the house with Compassionate Capitalism right there with him. Blaine, how are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I survived the Super Bowl, and yes. uh, and I wasn't there, so it was easy to survive. <laughs> yeah, no, it's an interesting thing how things get easier the longer we do them. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings, as you know, is if uh, we learn to love what we don't love and we learn to love what we don't like and we do it consistently without quitting, uh, it tells us all the secrets. It gives us the cheat codes. It becomes really easy. I love to explore your experience with that, maybe some sayings that you have about how people who stick to it. Uh, going back to Napoleon Hill, Bob Proctor, and others that you know combine a spiritual manifestation and laws of attraction with grit. Yeah, yeah, you know, just in, in the context of you know sayings or little memes, that sort of thing. Years ago, uh, when I was first starting out on this journey back in the seventies, uh, yeah, well, there was a lot of stuff that kind of scared me. And I and I say scared in the sense it wasn't a saber toothed tiger, but it's kind of like I don't know how to do this. I, just, I, don't, I, I am way out of my depth here. And one of my mentors at the time uh, said, "If you're you know, if you're stepping into a place that scares you, that's a sign that you need to take one more step." Nice, yeah. And and I've used that ever since uh, because as soon as I, yeah, everything's predicated on movement. So as long as you're moving, you got a lot of flexibility. If you're paralyzed and stuck, you're paralyzed and stuck. And a lot of people in life seem to be successfully stuck. <laughs> yeah. What about glamorized stuck? That, uh, you know, we're in a position where we're not consistent. So we have success. Um, but we, you know, it's that born on third base, think we hit a home run type of, of deal. And not only are we stuck, but everybody thinks that we have everything because we have what they want in a certain particular subject matter topic or expertise. Uh, for you, you know, how do we get over that glamorized stuck when we do achieve more than we maybe as a child even thought was possible, uh, but now we're in this glamorized stuck? There's a distinction to be made between being successful and being fulfilled. And in my experience, the folks that are stuck on third base, like, you know, you're describing they're born on third base. It's kind of like, yeah, I look around and all of the visible trappings of success seem to be in my life. But if I get quiet, if I really get quiet, I start noticing that there's something inside that's, you know, that wants to be expressed, that wants to actually do something, to be something. And until I can begin to listen to that voice, particularly if all the creature comforts are handled, I'm likely not going to move. It requires a little bit of discomfort, a little bit of dis-ease, uh, if you will, to begin to move off of third base. And that's, you know, I, I do a lot of work with family offices. And when we get into the third and fourth generations on some of these family offices that have got, you know, a billion dollars in assets, we run into this. It's kind of like, well, you know, I've got everything I need. What else should I do? And yeah. That gets to be an interesting conversation. Yeah, and the opposite is also true, is so many people are human doings, not human beings, and they don't get quiet. And so 
beyond the trappings, as you suggest. Uh, some people get so busy working, they forget to make money, they forget for their family, they forget their faith. Uh, but we're blessed to have the doctor in the house this morning. Uh, we are here with Dr. Eric Siegel, president of Prediction Impact out of San Francisco, uh, working and adapting uh, with us in these early hours in the West Coast. Uh, but he has a new book that is completely relevant today, Blaine. You know, there's yeah. three things I'm teaching my kids. One, people skills, because I think that'll be a great t- differentiator in the future for th- for, th- for them in, in business and life. I'm teaching them and encouraging them to read as much as possible so they can see the difference. I think that works out your muscle of real and fake, uh, but also to explore, to be more interested than interesting uh, in this AI world uh, and the playbook to that. As you know, my uh, podcast is called The Playbook. We're at over 1,500 episodes now, but his new book is uh, The AI Playbook, Mastering the Rare Art of Machine Learning Deployment, Utilizing uh, AI as Your Servant, Not Your Master. Welcome, Dr. Eric Siegel. Indeed, it's your servant, not not your master. Uh, thanks for having me, David, and and for plugging the book. Um, yeah, I'm 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 quite interested in making this uh, topic area accessible and concrete. There's a lot of hype, a lot of uh, excitement, and maybe twenty. A lot of that's warranted. Maybe twenty to forty percent of the excitement. But right now, the hype is a little over the top. The the, the antidote, though. Uh, to hype is to focus on concrete value. How is your organization going to benefit from machine learning, AI, whatever you want to call it? And when we're looking at that, I right now have hired an AI consultant such as yourself uh, to look at the capabilities of each one of our employees and look at each one of the capabilities of the software and even the virtual assistants that we have and give us an idea on what actually works today uh, that makes us more productive, accessible, and gracious with our time. Um, how would you, as you're looking at machine learning and looking at the end-to-end mastery of what we're doing by utilizing AI as our servant, how would you explore or recommend others who have businesses to explore today's value quantitatively within their organization of how to utilize AI? Well, the main thing I'd say is let's pivot from generative AI where all the attention is right now. Mm -hmm. Often the best thing to do is to pivot back to the original, which is now kind of called predictive AI to differentiate from generative. The established use cases of machine learning are to predict for each individual, customer, client, satellite that might run out of a battery, vehicle that might break down, transaction that might be fraudulent in order to improve operations. If you want to improve pretty much any of your main large-scale operations, it's predictive AI or predictive analytics, those types of predictive use cases um, of machine learning, whether the individual will click, buy, lie, or die to improve targeting of marketing, fraud detection, financial credit risk management. All large-scale operations are consist of many individual decisions, and prediction is the holy grail to drive each individual decision. Prediction is what you get from data. It's the most actionable insight. It's the holy grail for driving those decisions. Data is experience from which to learn, and what you can learn is to predict. So that's the definition of machine learning. 
learn from data to predict. In fact, it's the same core technology that drives generative AI, such as large language models, such as chat GPT, which is amazing. It's predicting what should the next word be actually token, but on that level of detail in order to write one word at a time, that could be very useful for first drafts. There must be a human in the loop. Um, you've got to review every, it's not going to be autonomous, right? You're not going to fully trust it like you would a human you can't, it, it, it's very seemingly human-like. So we need to temper our excitement, even though it is potentially very valuable, use it use wisely, it wise, use it in a way that, that helps human performance. We're having a little echo there. And, um, and, but check, check out predictive. That's the, it's older, but not old school. That's the established that's where the established track record, um, that's where there's more uh, resources invested. That's more, there's more proven returns. And that's where you stand to improve your existing large scale operations. Yeah. You thank know, you I, for your patience. Sorry, sorry, Blaine. I was yeah. trying to register back in there and uh, it gave him a loop of echoing. So I apologize. Uh, go ahead, Blaine. Got it. Got it. Yeah. You know, the idea of predictive uh, and generative AI, um, Strikes me as you know, some of the research I've done, a lot of the research I've done actually suggests that you know, human beings are pattern recognition machines. I mean, that's that's kind of how we navigate you know, life as we begin to build roadmaps in our mind uh, that are legacy developed. And we call it mindset, typically beliefs, values, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we recognize patterns, we, you know, speech patterns, color patterns, I mean, those sorts of things. So. If I'm understanding just the nature of AI in the broadest sense here, essentially what we're talking about, and you talk about this in terms of data uh, and how it's you know, uh, synthesized and, and then actually you know, um, worked with, it's basically pattern recognition on a grand scale. Would that be a fair assessment? Oh, yeah. yeah. Ab absolutely. I think the parallels between what humans can do and the kinds of things we're getting machines to do are kind of helpful. It's, I mean, it's metaphors, right? We speak in metaphors um, and the, we use the word machine learning for good reason, because what it's yeah. capable of doing is ascertaining those patterns or formulas from those historical examples where you already know what the outcome was. Those are cases from which to learn. It's literally called the training data. That's what data scientists call it. The machine learning software learns from that and the ability to ascertain patterns um, and formulas that hold over new unforeseen cases, unique individual situations that have never before been encountered. That means that in a sense, in a very well-defined sense, it's literally learned from the data and to be value focused. And I always want to get back to that. What's it learned to do? It's learned to predict. Prediction is what, what you get from machine learning. That's why it's called also called predictive AI or predictive analytics. Those established enterprise machine learning use cases. And what should we be looking for? Obviously, the AI itself is creating a even more expedient uh, usage of its own self, meaning it works upon itself. And AI is helping us develop things so much quicker, uh, whether it's for disease uh, in vaccines or whether it's in business processes. Uh, what should we be looking for because of the extremely uh, fast nature of development that is created by machine to machine learning. Well, my, my message is not to be too worried when we're talking about these real practical enterprise use cases, the core technology is evolving. It is improving, but the bigger deal 
the main missing ingredient is more of a cultural cultural or organizational um, change, which is that right now the focus is on the number crunching and we're fetishizing it. And for good reason, everything I just described about learning from data to predict, I think it's the coolest kind of science. That's why I, and probably most data scientists I've been got into in the first place, I've been in the field of machine learning for 30 years, but just because the number crunching is good doesn't mean it's valuable. It doesn't generate um, or cap, that is to say, it doesn't capture or realize value unless you act on it, unless you implement those predictive models, integrate them, deploy them, operationalize them, change existing large scale operations. And change is painful. It takes an organization, organizational practice. That's what I've put together in this book is a six step practice I call BizML, the business practice for running machine learning projects. And that's the main missing ingredient. Most new machine learning projects actually fail to deliver value because they fail to deploy entirely. So connecting end to end, getting deep collaboration between business side and, and uh, the data scientists between the quants uh, you know, and the business professionals, that's the missing ingredient. And that deep collaboration that's informed by semi-technical understanding, following an understood paradigm playbook, um, process, um, methodology, that's, what's going to get you there and allow for the, you know, get the organization to embrace change because it's not just the number crunching. It's an organizational operations improvement project. You need to see it as a business project that involves business change. Amazing. Blaine, anything to follow up with? Well, the idea of change, you know, the, the, the problem with change in most organizations isn't the change itself. It's the disruption to existing relationships that the change causes. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to, you know, bring these, you know, these predictive models together, people have got, and I'm, I'm thinking here of a, a SAP project or something like that, where, you know, you're changing you know, the nature of work processes based on predictive models about, you know, that suggest if we do this, we're going to get better results, but people have got entrenched ways of behaving with their jobs, their relationship with their job, the relationship with their work process. And this may be out of your wheelhouse just a little bit here, but how do you actually, you know, facilitate that shift where people begin to go, Oh, not only does this make business sense, but I can see how this actually will benefit me. Yeah, yeah you've got to align. You've got to align incentives, and one of the main flagship examples in my book is UPS improving and optimizing by changing the way they deliver 16 million packages a day. They do it more efficiently. This is an established company, more than 100 years old, set in its ways, and the only way they got the change, for example, to get the uh, staff members working on the loading dock putting the packages into the trucks was to align incentives, uh, you know, set leading indicators rather than the lagging indicators in a, in a scorecard that they were incentivized and they were participating in to get them to change and comply with, with newly prescribed um, behaviors based on optimization. In, in particular, it was by predicting, it all comes to prediction. That's the value. Predicting where you're going to have deliveries tomorrow it, and to augment the known deliveries so that you can better plan from a, from a larger perspective exactly how to uh, uh, assign all the packages to the trucks so that things happen more optimally during tomorrow's driving. And it's, it, I mean, the win was incredible in combination with prescribed driving. Um, this system at UPS saves 185 million miles <clears throat> of driving a year, $350 million and 185,000 metric tons of emissions. 
Um, so I think that what you just said, Blaine, is such an amazing point about, hey, it's not just that change is, is painful, but more specifically, the relationships between humans have to change. Yes, yes, yes. But my my message before that is even more fundamental. And it's this simple. You got to take it on as a change management project. That's yeah. the missing thing is just recognizing that it's change management. Again, we're fetishizing, focused on this core technology, whether the, you know these, these models that predict whether you'll click, buy, lie, or die, but predicting those things is only useful if you act on it, get it operationalized. In today's world, it's like we're more excited about the rocket science than the launch of the rocket. Having an end-to-end -end practice so that you're focused from the get-go in reverse planning on what that deployment will entail and get everybody on the same page and then recognize, yes, it's an operations improvement project. So simply the problem in a sense is people don't conceive of these projects as needing change management. They think this is the best of technology. The technology is intrinsically valuable. No, it's the best of technology, but it's not intrinsically valuable. It's only useful if you act on it, if you implement it, deploy it. That's change. Let's recognize that we do have to take on the discipline of change <clears throat> management for these projects to actually realize value. And finally, uh, Eric, based off of all the different cultural changes that are occurring and the usage of uh, predictive analysis by machine learning, do you think it increases uh, the fear or de decreases the fear? Obviously, with generative AI, it increases fear because people see the replacement or supplementary capability. It seems that there's more of an enhancement that's created through the predictive yes. analysis and it would reduce fear. Is that correct? Well, um, there's always fear of change. <clears throat> there's no yeah. getting away from that, but there's also no getting away from the need for change and evolution. And, you know, when it comes down to it, your competitors are doing it. So, I mean, it, it, improving, optimizing, streamlining, streamlining large scale operations with the predictions you get from data, otherwise known as using machine learning, um, is one of the last remaining points of differentiation where these things are all becoming kind of coming commoditized and large scale enterprise operations are so similar from one organization to the, the other. So again, last remaining point of differentiation, critical way of making more intelligent decision making across uh, hundreds of thousands or millions of decisions. And the holy grail for that is prediction. You can't get away from sort of need, needing to tackle that change. But I think also when you go into the generative side and you have these language models that are so seemingly human-like, that most of the fear there is actually unwarranted. Now, look, computers are machines that automate. Any machine is meant to automate. So any progress with any kind of machine is going to be disruptive at least a little bit to the workforce. And there's that's economics. Things do have to shift. But the hype is telling us that these things are not just seemingly human-like, but quickly developing towards general human-level capability. I believe that's a false narrative. I think we need to hold two thoughts in our heads at the same time. This is incredible, um, never-before-seen kind of capabilities that are seemingly human-like and potentially quite useful for writing first drafts. But that doesn't mean that it's inching its way towards general human level capabilities. Let's not take for granted what we're capable of as humans. Computers are not going to wholesale replace. You can't onboard them and you're not going to be able to anytime soon or onboard them like a human employee and let them rip autonomously. So that's sort of the irony is that it's more seemingly human-like. 
And yet for the tasks you would use generative AI, it's actually less potentially autonomous. You've got to have the human in the loop reviewing everything that it generates. Yeah, if we were to succumb to the fear of progress uh, way back when they tried to pass laws about uh, looms and not having our first computers created uh, with the loom, we, we'd be far behind where we are today. So, uh, you know, and then I always use the hammer analogy. Uh, hammer is a technology that could build a house or break it down, depending on the person that's utilizing the hammer. So I'm trying to bring as many experts into our space with the AI playbook that shows us and illustrates us the power of using uh, AI to build a house, not break it down. Dr. Eric Siegel, come back and join us. We have many other platforms. Everybody, if you're not looking into paying attention and giving intention to AI, uh, you're going to fall farther and farther behind in your capabilities. I would check out Dr. Eric Siegel's new book, The AI Playbook. Hold it up there so we can recognize it. And we show that at the airports as well uh, through Reach TV. Mastering the rare art of machine learning deployment, creating a culture around it and empowering others to empower others with it. The AI Playbook. Dr. Eric Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, David. And thanks, Blaine. Great to meet you, Blaine. You bet. You take care. We'll see you Have soon. a good rest of your week. Yeah, you too. We need more. We need more of that, Blaine. That's for sure. People out there yes. explaining uh, and to, to create that. Um, have you started utilizing AI? I know you, you're a world business consultant with some of the biggest con, uh, companies in the world. You know, how have you integrated AI into what you're doing around the world? It's it's been very minimal, uh, quite honestly. Uh, mostly, it's just automating back office stuff. Uh, yeah, predicting, I mean, yeah, just in the context of predictive analysis here, uh, you know, gaps in schedules and, uh, I mean, just different things like that. But I'm not really doing a lot with it outside of just, like I said, some just basic back office uh, uh, administration sort of details and, and tasks. Yeah, and for you... Um... Have you seen any of, because I know you with culture and collaboration and coordination and, you know, building momentum in those big organizations. Uh, have you dealt with it on the cultural side of things? I know you are the king of getting people productive and engaged. Uh, have there been any issues that have arisen as your type of consultant as well? Yeah, I mean, it's the one that I alluded to and, you know, when I asked that question of Eric was, you know, the disruption to relationships that the change causes, because when some of these large systems begin to deploy some of these uh, machine learning tools, uh, the idea and the intent from a business case perspective is uh, differentiation. You know, that's that's one piece of it, uh, but also streamlining. And the, the streamlining you know, lends itself to an increase in productivity, ideally, those sorts of things, all of which begins to disrupt existing work practices and processes. And people have got affinities towards the way that they do things. And if we're not paying attention to that part of it, which a lot of companies don't, they think the business case argument will carry the day. And it seldom does carry the day in and of itself. You've got to have another conversation. Yeah, what does this make possible for you as an individual if we're successful in doing this? That begins to bring it back home to where people can go, oh, there, there's a win in this for me. It's not trying to replace me. I see how I get to benefit. 
sort of a thing. Yeah, no doubt. And now Craig Muir has a question for us, uh, which is, what's your thoughts on AI and IP theft? And I have a particularly uh, different perspective when it comes to protecting, protecting your AI and, and IP. Um, I, I think a lot of startups, small businesses spend far too much time, energy uh, on uh, protecting. They, they should have one layer of protection, uh, but they shouldn't make it their primary uh, objective <clears throat> to protect too early. And, and the reason is, is that there's so much to steal out there or uh, from others that don't have any. So one layer of protection uh, in cybersecurity, one layer of protection in your personal finances, it's enough of a deterrent that they don't want to waste their time because there's another thousand people that have no protection at all. And I see a lot of small businesses make the mistake. Uh, they spend a lot on AI and IP protection uh, when they don't have enough audience where anyone, number one, would want to steal anything from them because nobody wants to steal an unsuccessful IP or AI uh, thing. And two, uh, they also, even if someone was particularly enamored by what they've created early on with no audience, marketplace, or community, that one layer, there's so many people that are unprotected. One protection is enough to deter uh, everyone. And so kind of in that broken window theory of criminal justice, it applies as well uh, to IP and to AI protection. Uh, Craig, you can kind of look look into that as well. I see a lot of small businesses as well, Blaine, way too much time on, you know, logos and, you know, operating agreements. Where are some areas that you would help a small business or you see them wasting far too much time too early? Well, yeah, I think, I mean, and, and Craig, I appreciate the question here. David, you know, you're back at the all-star game right now. And just metaphorically, if you think about, yeah, yeah, Kareem, Abdul-Jabbar, yeah, Lou Elsevier in his, yeah, his college days, but the skyhook, yeah. Now you could say the skyhook was his IP. What matters isn't the IP itself. It's does somebody know how to actually leverage and utilize that IP in a in a in a unique sort of a way? Typically, the inventor of the IP has got a unique take on that IP itself. So if somebody, I make most of my IP. I mean, it's it's, it's I don't have firewalls or any of that other stuff. I mean, yeah, somebody you know, is enamored enough by it, they want to take and run with it. Knock yourself out, and know that I'm the one that developed it. I know how to use it. I know how to, you know, to tweak it. I know how to, <laughs> so the, the, the value proposition isn't in the IP. It's in how it gets utilized, deployed, married into other things. Yeah, all of that stuff kind of comes together. There's a secret sauce to it, but the ingredient by itself isn't the secret sauce. So to your point, yeah, you're going to want to mitigate you know, your exposure to risk. I mean, I, I lock my car. Yeah, and to your point, if somebody's passing by and they're you know, intent on doing something and the, the car door doesn't open, they're going to go, okay, fine, next. Yeah, because there's going to be one out there that isn't locked. So that sort of a thing. Yeah. I've got finite resources, you know, money being one of them. So how do I use them? You know, that, that you know, protection is one thing. And it comes from a you know, mindset of scarcity. Uh, I want to have an abundant mindset. Yeah, it's amazing that abundant mindset. You know, there's foundations like St. Jude Hospital <clears throat> in one of the most scarce districts where everybody's hiding their IP for the development of a cure of cancer, for example, 
where the one reason I love St. Jude and the foundation, the charity of St. Jude is that they immediately post up to every private company, every public company in the world, all of their research and findings so that we can cure cancer, not yep. worried about making money and hiding and protecting their IP. And uh, I feel the same way, you know, it's like, um, if you can do better with my ideas, God bless you. My mission is to empower a billion people to be happy, to make money, help people and have fun. And, you know, I, I sat backstage, one of my favorite lessons, uh, I was with Colleen, who you know, the president of my company, Blaine. And I, and I sat backstage uh, as the closing keynote. And one of my mentees uh, for years, you know, actually was before me speaking. And as I'm sitting backstage, He's rambling off, you know, be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. And, you know, I, I, and Colleen is very protective of me, uh, as well as my wife, right? They're like, oh, my God. And just so angry and furious. And, you know, like, I can't believe he stole your, you know, speech and your ideas. And, you know, first of all, I know where my ideas come uh, through me, not from me. Uh, mm -hmm. But. I tapped her on the shoulder. I said, Bree, I said, my mission is to empower others, to empower others. And if he knows uh, those ideas well enough to articulate the quantitative value and uh, inspire people with being more interested than interesting or being kind to your future self, uh, then, you know, I'm okay. And he's actually complimenting me uh, with that. Yeah. All right. We have the incredible Ben Fraser in the green room. He's the chief investment officer of Aspen Funds, and uh, he is here to talk about Aspen Funds. Welcome to Office Hours, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me, David. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. Thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, I like to bring people on that understand money, understand raising money, understand investing money. And uh, there's the nice thing about money is it's a quantitative uh, species, meaning, you know, when you people personally have underwritten $125 million in CI and uh, CRE loans, uh, you have someone that has a lot of situational knowledge and has paid a lot of dummy tax uh, to host uh, and to support people so that they can get the best use out of uh, investment in, in the use of those funds. You have a great podcast called the Invest Like a Billionaire podcast. What are some of the things people do uh, that really are not aligned with their timing and risk tolerance or not aligned with where they want to be or better comes to funding their projects? Yeah, yeah, great question. So, yeah, a little bit of my backstory. You kind of mentioned it. So, I used to be a commercial banker, underwriter, uh, did a lot in um, kind of commercial real estate as well as business loans, did some small um small medium-sized business acquisitions and was a really great learning experience got to see kind of behind the scenes of you know very wealthy borrowers of the bank and so this is kind of a boutique business bank and uh got to look at the per personal financial statements tax returns you know everything under the hood of these very wealthy uh, individuals and really was able to see some common denominators um and, and two of them that kind of stood out to me at that point were most of them were business owners and a lot of them invested in real estate. 
And so kind of just some light bulb moments for me early on. Um, and then I made a transition into the private equity side of the world, um, kind of left banking and now work with a lot of bankers on the other side of it. But yeah, our podcast, Invest Like a Billionaire, our goal is really to study what are the ultra wealthy um, investors doing that the retail or what I call everyday millionaires aren't necessarily doing. And so that's really been the passion of, of uh, you know, discovery in that podcast and trying to pull, um, you know, out nuggets that we can kind of apply at a maybe smaller scale, you know, if you're not a billionaire yet. So, you know, for me, it's, you kind of mentioned a little bit, but a lot of it is, is mindset. Um, and if I was going to distill, you know, what is one of the biggest differences um, aside from very tactical things, but the first is taking ownership of your money, right? And what I've what I've found is people work so hard and spend so much time in education, going to college, taking courses, doing additional continuous <clears throat> learning to create more income. But then they, for some reason, spend almost zero time thinking about how to multiply what they have, how to use the resources they have to create leverage and to um, increase their asset base. Um, and usually was blindly hand the keys over to someone that they think has their best interest in mind. And that's not always a bad thing, but if the mentality is, you know, I'm just going to hand it over here and let someone else figure it out. I think you're missing a huge piece of, acceleration and momentum and wealth building? You know, it strikes me, and, and I you know, do a lot of work with family offices, uh, you know, usually in excess of a billion dollars in assets, that sort of thing. And the notion that most people have, I think, and I'm going to just check this out with you, Ben, is that money is a transactional currency and it's, you know, it's, it's traded for something. So there's a finite sort of a thing that comes with it. In these family offices and the folks that I'm working with, that's, and you mentioned mindset, they seem to approach it from a very different perspective. Money is energy and it's something that can fuel something else. It's not a transaction per se. It's they use it as an energetic conduit to creating something else. And that, you know, and that's my language for it. But does that seem to match what you're discovering yeah, in the folks that you talk to in your, in your uh, billionaire play, uh, uh, billionaire podcast? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's a great way to think about it. And, you know, to me, it, it comes back to another big mindset, which is the abundance mindset versus scarcity mm -hmm. mindset, right? And I think so much of the time we're taught to think of this is, you know, all the amount that I can earn in this salary, or this is as much as I can have. I have to spend 40 years to build enough in retirement in my 401k to hopefully have enough to live off of the rest of my life. And part of it is, the skills that you learn, the uh, the tools that you can create leverage with, like as I've continued to grow my career and my ability to generate wealth, like it's, it's remarkable to me. It's not that complicated, right? I mean, it's to your point, it's where can you find value? Where can you create a asymmetric investment of time, energy, and resource for the outcome, which is multiples of, of that investment in it. And I think that's the mentality that a lot of these ultra wealthy use is like you said, money is energy, money is a resource. And I want to get a return on, on that resource. You know, when I was studying finance in college, you know, you learn the principles of capital allocation. And the idea is 
in any efficient market, money flows to the areas where the belief that it can produce the best return, the best risk adjusted return. That's just the natural state. Money's going to flow to where it's going to get its best uh, use. And I think we can apply that in our own lives too, personally, where, you know, am I being a good steward of what I have? Do I have the skills and resources and leverage points to create multiplication? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Our mentor, uh, Blaine and mine, Bob Proctor, uh, used to always tell me you could drop all the money in the world right in the middle of the desert. It would redistribute itself to the exact same people in the exact <laughs> same amounts. And I firmly believe that uh, ben, we will have you back on. We need more of you. We need more of your insights. I want to talk about perceived value. I want to talk about timing tolerance. Uh, we have to get on to the NBA All-Star game today. So a little bit short on time. We appreciate you uh, showing as well. We have other shows, Blaine and I, both uh, TV shows, podcasts, and the show. If uh, you don't mind, we'd love to have you back. Does that sound fair? Would love it. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Great. Awesome. The incredible Ben Frazier. Check him out. The CIO of Aspen Funds. Money is an energy. He's going to teach you how to attract it and then utilize it. The only thing that limits you with money is your own self-image. So you need a partner who's been around the block. Ben Frazier, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. All right. We uh, have to run and what is it? Run and gun or run and show. I feel like the Lakers right now. Uh, so uh, it's it's showtime. Uh, it's showtime. Go dribble. Go dribble. Right. She's an amazing songwriter. We'll have her on tomorrow or the next day. Uh, so I know we our schedules got uh, discombobulated for whatever reason. I'm going to personally call uh, each and every one of them to see exactly what happened. So I appreciate your patience as uh, technology and time are our friends. But I had to leave. Uh, enough time, Blaine. What's your takeaway for the day? Um, I, I think just, you know, I'm going to go back to you know, Eric's uh, major point uh, around predictability. Yeah, we are pattern recognition mavens. I mean, that's we recognize patterns. So, and where I'm going with that is the takeaway is the more I can become aware of what, the, what are the patterns that are running in my life, the more choices I have about how I run my life. So it's not running me. I actually run it. So that's the takeaway today. Recognize the patterns yeah. that are in play in your life. And, and mine is, you know, the cheat <clears throat> code, uh, the learning process of, you know, the for- mathematical formula of luck. You know, it, it's amazing when we show intention for a consistent amount of time without the results that we want, how easy things get. And I was thinking of all the different people we've had on today, as well as just being at the Super Bowl uh, so many years that I saw so much disease and frustration and anxiety and all the things that I was blessed to experience over the last 35 years at these big events. Uh, And now understanding the subtleties of success, the objectives I have, uh, not wasting the energy, the time, the emotion and the value but that takes time, energy, emotion, and value to figure out how not to waste time, emotion, <laughs> money, and value. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think we see that with AI in the cultural aspect as well as the application. Uh, we see it as well in finance, in the Billionaire's bod- Podcast as well. Um, and, you know, of course, uh, as we move forward um, and, and bring uh, other people on, 
from our experience of so many different clients, we see the exact same formula to success, fulfillment, passion, purpose, and profitability. You can have it all if you learn here on Office Hours from the incredible Blaine Bartlett. Go to blainebartlett.com. He's my mentor. He should be yours. I promise you, quantitatively, he is the best investment that you can make in your personal and professional life. Blaine, I will see you soon. We got uh, a little different probable tonight here at the NBA All-Star Game, and we are on the road tour, the road show. We're running and gunning, as you said earlier. Once again, thank you for your patience. Rocky was waiting in the green room to come on, but I got to get to uh, the Pacers and Puma uh, to that studio in another 17 minutes. So I am going to run and gun. Thank you, Blaine, for joining us. You bet, buddy. Take care. Have a great time. You got it. Thank you. All right, everyone. Speaking of running and gunning, we will be doing a meetup today in Indianapolis uh, at the Indy Hotel. Email me, david at email.com. We have a VIP dinner tonight with Dominique Wilkins, uh, with Meta World Peace, uh, with Darren Prince, so many other people. And we are on the road show. We are at SoFi next week. Then we are in Chicago, New York City, New Jersey, and Philadelphia. So, and then Vegas. So if uh, you are in any of those cities, uh, join us, david at dmail.com or our text community, 949-298-2905. And you can join us there. Be more interested than interesting. Be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you later.